Last night, a square mile in central Baghdad seemed like hell on earth. Almost three years ago, the British and American coalition which had overthrown Saddam Hussein was given a very special responsibility by the United Nations. It was given trusteeship of more than $20 billion, which belonged to the people of Iraq. Over the next 14 months, it spent almost all of it. Yet no one can account for where it all went. Literally billions of dollars have gone missing. American law was suspended, Iraqi law was suspended, and Iraq basically became a free fraud zone. In a free fire zone, you can shoot at anybody you want. In a free fraud zone, you can steal anything you like. Tonight on Dispatches, we reveal the fraud, incompetence, and corruption, which is the Iraq money pit. I think that as trustees of the uh, Iraq uh, assets, we did a very poor job. I think it was a failure. After all, it was their money. We should have spent it on the Iraqi people rather than sucking out of them and putting it in the pockets of foreign businesses. And today, all across Iraq, ordinary people are paying the price of that failure. One official was given nearly $7 million and told to spend it in seven days. Ali Fadil is an Iraqi doctor, but he's also a journalist who's won international awards for his dangerous work uncovering the truth about conditions in Iraq today. We asked him to investigate the human consequences of the coalition's failure to rebuild Iraq as promised. Ali and his family live in Baghdad. His daughter, Sarah, is just three. Sarah was born four days before Saddam fell. I think of her as the future of Iraq. But that future depends on Iraq being rebuilt. This was the promise made by the United States and Britain. We will help them to restore basic services, such as electricity and water, and to build new schools, roads, and medical clinics. Few things provide a better barometer of the state of a nation's health than the state of its health service. The coalition says it spent hundreds of millions of dollars on this. So we asked Ali to use his medical expertise to see what's been achieved. While dispatches went to the United States in search of the people who spent Iraq's money, Ali set off to look at reconstruction in one small area of Iraq. They spent actually $527 million in a very small city in the south of Iraq called Diwaniya. And uh, I believe it's a good place to go and see. So we'll go to, to that city and see what the Americans have done so far. Ali headed for Diwaniya, 100 miles south of Baghdad, 
on one of the most dangerous roads in Iraq. Because of the danger, only an Iraqi could attempt this kind of investigation. But he'll be risking his life to do it. I decided to visit Diwaniya's only state pediatric and maternity hospital. The years of war, neglect by Saddam and Western sanctions left this hospital in a terrible state. So the staff were very pleased when last year the Americans promised a $4 million refit. But with just a week to go before this part of the hospital opens, it's not looking very promising. The hospital manager has invited me to join an inspection tour. But the man representing the American contractor is not happy about me filming. As we walk around, the problems are obvious. Outside, we can see an open manhole and sewage in the garden. And in the kitchen, more blocked sewage. Everywhere, the standard of work is terrible. New light fittings have melted. Pipes have not been connected. In the operating theater changing room, you can smell raw sewage. But there is one thing that to a doctor seems incredible. The flooring has been repaired so badly, it is now a potential killer. I can even see ants crawling under the flooring. And this is in an operating theater that's going to be in use in a week's time. The man in charge of maintenance is in despair. The American contractor told us that all the work had been done by Iraqi subcontractors overseen by them and US government agencies. But for Iraqis, the real issue is this. The coalition had $23 billion of Iraq's own money. So what have they done with it? The money included proceeds from the sale of Iraq's oil under the United Nations Oil for Food program and seized Iraqi bank accounts. It was all put into a new fund run by the coalition, the so-called Development Fund for Iraq. Uh, any oil sales that were made in this period, uh, th those monies from those sales became part of the Development Fund for Iraq. All assets of the government, whether within the country or outside the country, were part of the development fund for Iraq. The fund was turned into hard cash, stored by the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. From there, literally tons and tons of crisp $100 bills were transported to Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, then flown to Iraq. Over the first 14 months of the occupation, 363 tons of $100 bills were flown in. That's $12 billion in cash. Iraq was awash in cash, in dollar bills, the US dollars. Piles and piles of money. The CPA, or Coalition Provisional Authority, ran Iraq during that period. 
and they were in charge of the Iraqi money. But who ran the CPA? Officially, it was the Coalition of the Willing, including the UK. The reality was very different. The American State Department had prepared plans for the post-war rebuilding of Iraq, but the Bush administration swept those plans aside. Instead, power was handed to the people in this building. The Pentagon. The military, the people who run wars, not countries, were put in charge of nation-building. The Pentagon's man in Iraq was American Ambassador L. Paul Bremer III, and he immediately put his stamp on the new regime. He said US contractors were not subject to Iraqi law. He gave them immunity from prosecution or even collection actions under Iraqi law. So American law was suspended, Iraqi law was suspended, and Iraq basically became a free fraud zone. In a free fraud zone, you can steal anything you like. And that was what they did. Frank Willis was one of Bremer's top officials. He was a senior member of the Coalition Provisional Authority and effectively in charge of all civil aviation in occupied Iraq. He's agreed to speak out about the Iraq money pit and how it worked. Contracts were negotiated fast and furiously. Uh, sums were paid. Contractors went about their business, but there was very poor oversight of the performance in those contracts. There was a lack of personnel on our part, and there was a lack of trained personnel on our part to provide an effective supervising function. In an atmosphere of chaos, fantastic sums of money were stashed by the Americans in Saddam's captured palace. Bags of cash were handed out daily. We were known to have played football with some of the bricks of $100 bills uh, before delivery. Uh, it was a Wild West crazy atmosphere, the likes of which none of us had ever experienced. Security was incredibly lax. From one vault, three quarters of a million dollars was stolen. Another safe was left open. In one case, two American agents left Iraq without accounting for nearly one and a half million dollars. When you have cash, it stands to reason that you're not going to be able to trace in the same kind of way. It's why a lot of dirty deals are done in cash. As word spread of the deals to be done in Iraq, contractors from around the world began to congregate. Some were reputable, some were not. It attracted uh, soldiers of fortune and people who went to Iraq in order to make a buck. Uh, these were people who had no interest in uh, fostering democracy in Iraq. They had no interest even in carrying out their instructions from the US military. What they were interested in was in simply making a profit. They saw their opportunity and they went for it. And these are the people who we know as the war profiteers. The profiteers were on their way and the Iraqi people were about to pay the price. From the early days of the occupation in 2003, Iraq was awash with dollars and with promises of a new tomorrow. $18.4 billion to the people of Iraq to rebuild the country. Putting money into essential services like health care. The budget for 203 would be somewhere between $600 million and $800 million. Money is flowing back into the health care system. 
So what happened to all those promises? Dr Ali Fadil is in a paediatric and maternity hospital in Diwaniya trying to find out. This hospital has just had a $4 million refurbishment. But where did all that money go? Not on vital medical equipment. There's a constant stream of children from Diwaniya with severe diarrhea and dehydration. To rehydrate them, special fine drip needles, cannulas, are needed. This is a basic piece of equipment, very cheap. But an infant like this needs the very smallest of needles, and the hospital has none. Her mother has brought her here in desperation after another hospital spent three days trying unsuccessfully to get a large cannula into her. It's all too much for the mother who's watched her child suffer unnecessarily for so long. So how come after three years of occupation and billions of dollars of spending, hospitals are still short of basic supplies? Health experts who were in Iraq in the first weeks of the occupation say the mistakes were made from the start. This laid the basis for today's problems in Diwaniya. But what we should have done is help to flood the country with simple equipment. The simple basics is what you need, including the management systems to know what you have and what you don't have. And those are the things that we didn't do. We went more for uh, big-ticket, showy items that you could splash around uh, for symbolic value than some of these uh, less attractive but more important substantive things that make all the difference between life and death in an emergency room. The first international health professionals sent in to rebuild Iraq's health service felt there were already good foundations. Iraq had a very reasonable primary health care system. They had experts. I worked with some of them. They, they very clearly knew what needed to be done. If we had engaged with them and worked with them, I think we would have been much farther along now because they understood, as, as we could not, their own health care system and what was needed. But Coalition Provisional Authority boss Paul Bremer had a different blueprint for the Pentagon's new Iraq. Every official with links to the old regime was to go. It was called debathification, but it was indiscriminate. So, along with Saddam's stooges and placemen, Bremer cleared out most of the people needed to run the health system. We had no typewriters, no desks, no nothing anymore. But we had left one kind of asset, which was the people who were there to run the health system. They were still there. And so, then to fire those very people, is obviously not made, doesn't make sense because you can replace them, but you lose time in, in, in replacing them and training them. Dr. Ali Fadil was working in Baghdad Medical City at the time. He saw firsthand the effects of debathification. We lost a very, very, very intelligent and professional doctor because of a, a silly and idiot policy of 
of getting rid of the Baathist at the very, very beginning, which was, you know, totally wrong. He's just a doctor, he's just a physician. And he would, at least if he was there and if he's still there, he would save a lot of lives. To head the reconstruction of the Iraqi health service, the Pentagon appointed a health administrator from Michigan, James Haverman. I went to Iraq as a senior advisor. My role is to advise Ambassador Bremer on health care issues, but also to work with the Ministry of Health to make sure that it's strong. Haverman had little international health experience, but he was a prominent Bush supporter. He was appropriate as a political advisor because he had the trust of senior leadership um, in the Pentagon who related to the reconstruction of Iraq. Uh, he had the political qualifications, but not the technical ones. And he was a uh, highly moral religious individual, and he fit with the profile of many of the people who were in senior administration. I happen to vote Republican. I happen to support George W. Bush as president and his policies. And I did some consulting once for Jeb Bush uh, during a transition from one, uh, one term to another. Uh, those, that's, that all looks like pretty good credentials to me. Uh, and uh, that's just who I am. There were lots of people with much more experience of developing health internationally, with dealing with post-conflict situations. You hadn't had any experience in that. I didn't deal with post-conflict situations. Uh, what's unique about a post-conflict situation? What's unique about uh, a pre-conflict situation? What's unique about... Uh, uh, managing health care in Michigan. I think you got to have the skill and the ability. I happen to be a social worker by training. Uh, I happen to understand health. I mean, when you're, I mean, I manage the health care system for Michigan for 10 million people. I don't even know why I'm trying to defend this because I think I got the ability to do it. Uh, and I think the president and people who interviewed me at the Pentagon and the State Department and elsewhere thought I had the skills as well. Critics claim that people were given important jobs not because they were the best qualified, but because of their political connections. I believe it had a lot to do with showing that the U.S. was in control. And I believe that it had to do with rewarding people that were politically loyal. So rather than being a technical agenda, I believe it was largely a politically motivated uh, reward and punishment kind of agenda. That sounds very like the way Saddam ran the country. If you were to interview Iraqis uh, today about what they see day to day, I think they will tell you that they don't see a lot of difference. Back on the road, Ali is continuing his investigation of the failures in rebuilding Iraq's essential services. He's trying to find out why so many children are suffering from diarrhea and dehydration. A member of the city council took me on a tour to neighborhoods where there are no schools, no domestic water supplies and sewage in the street. The US ambassador for reconstruction says Diwaniya has benefited from a $500 million reconstruction program, but I can see little evidence of it.
يعني ولا واحد ينفذ اوامرنا وهل تشوف العالم هاي بالصيف ابد ما نام وهسه حاليا هذا شتاء يعني لو طب وشوف البيوت البك هيك صاير بالغرف الله شاهد والريحه يعني ابد مالها ما لا سولفها I was told that a U.S. company was paid nearly $3 million to rebuild Diwaniya's sewage works. Yet the plant is still not working because power cables have not been laid. So sewage goes into the river untreated, polluting drinking water downstream. The United States says it spent billions on Iraq's essential services. Yet according to its own latest figures, they're worse than before the war. They're generating less electricity, yet one and a half billion dollars has been spent on it. They're producing less oil, yet half a billion dollars has been spent on that too. They're supplying less clean water, yet another half a billion dollars has been spent. Back in the hospital, an anxious father fears his child may have meningitis. As so often in the desperate situation of Diwaniya, angry parents turn on the doctors. But at least I was able to tell the family that their child did not have meningitis. She had a complication arising from fever and dehydration, probably caused by bad sanitation. The money that should have helped those people was entrusted to the coalition by the United Nations. But official auditors have not been able to discover where it all went. Now investigations by the Special Inspector General for Iraqi Reconstruction are leading to arrests. But the inspectors have struggled to get at the truth about the Coalition Provisional Authority and the Development Fund for Iraq. There were less than adequate internal controls in many cases. Uh, very often we found that contracts were missing, that the individuals who were responsible for them had short terms and they had left and turned it over to someone else. Uh, and so we had a very difficult time actually trying to make sure that all the money was accounted for. It was a climate which practically invited exploitation. The largest single recipient of Iraq's money was American energy company Halliburton, formerly led by U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney. They received $1.6 billion of Iraqi money to help reinstate the country's oil supply. Auditors said $177 million were overcharged. Although Halliburton continues to deny this, it recently reached a settlement with the U.S. government to repay $9 million. But while some companies may have overcharged, others went far further. Scott Custer and former Republican candidate Mike Battles were about to fleece Iraqi funds of millions of dollars. One man who worked with them until he realized what they were up to was Bob Isaacson. Their background was impeccable. Uh, they were military officers, CIA 
One of them had run for the United States Congress. They were recommended by very high-level uh, U.S. government officials as being, being honest individuals. Today, lawyer Alan Grayson is working with Bob Isaacson to recover money from Custer Battles using a U.S. law which allows Isaacson to share some of it. These were people um, who went over to Iraq without uh, any presence there, uh, without any employees there, uh, without uh, equipment, without facilities, uh, without uh, any tangible qualifications, and without any money. They had no money. Uh, Scott Custer, from what I'm told by my men, could not pay the $15 or the $20 to get out of the Jordanian airport to immigration fee. Almost immediately, Custer Battles landed a $15 million contract to provide security for civilian flights at Baghdad Airport. But the flights never happened, so Custer Battles carried out other security duties. Frank Willis didn't hire them, but as the coalition's head of civil aviation, he did have to pay them. $2 million was due on the 1st of August. We went down to the vault, got the $2 million in crisp new $100 bills. They were shrink-wrapped in $100,000 amounts. We called the representative of Custer Battles and said, come on up and get your payment, bring a gunny sack. We've got your money ready for you. Meanwhile, from their base in Baghdad Airport, Custer and Battles were determined to expand their empire. And their next big chance was this, Iraq's money exchange program known as the ICE Project. It was a classic coalition exercise. They couldn't get desperately needed drugs to hospitals, but they would cheerfully devote enormous resources to replacing dinars showing Saddam's face with ones that didn't. The logistical challenge involved with this currency exchange is enormous. Uh, the, the amount of cash is something like over 2,200 tons of bills. Um, it's an enormous uh, challenge. It is something that we believe is another sign that the reconstruction is on track. Custer Battles won a contract which would pay them their costs plus 25%. But they wanted far more than that as one of their associates explained to Bob Isaacson. He said, that, oh no, we can make dramatically more money than that. I said, well, what are you talking, how, how could you possibly do that? The associate explained that they would simply create false companies to put in exaggerated bills for costs, which would be passed on to the Americans. I said, listen, you, I'm not gonna do that, you, that's illegal. We're not gonna be involved. We don't get involved in that kind of stuff. We ain't gonna be involved and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's criminal. Custer Battles went ahead anyway. They simply made up invoices from the companies that they controlled for numbers that were wildly different from what their actual expenses were. And they handed in those invoices in lieu of the real invoices. For a new helipad, Custer Battles got another company to do the work, then charged a profit of more than 60% on top and they rented to the coalition forklift trucks that were not even theirs. They were Iraqi Airways property that had been abandoned. They painted them over so that no one would recognize them as Iraqi Airways forklifts, and Custer Bowles then turned around and leased them to the government for $108,000 over four months alone. But then Custer Battles made an extraordinary mistake. 
they left a devastatingly incriminating document in a CPA meeting room. Grayson has a copy. So this is what he left behind. Um, it's the spreadsheet as of August 20th of 2003. It lists various columns. This is what Custer Bowles actually spent. This is what they invoiced to the government for the same items. Five-ton truck. Actual cost, $240,000 for 12 of them. Invoiced cost, $600,000. Filing cabinets. Actual cost, zero. Evidently because they found them abandoned at Baghdad International Airport. Invoice cost $200. Hand trucks, 12 of them. Actual cost $480. Invoice cost $4,800. That's a 1,000% markup. And on and on and on for page after page after page until you reach the end and you see that $3 million of expenses under a time and materials contract turned into a horrific $10 million in billings to the government. But perhaps the most extraordinary thing is this. Despite the evidence, the US government has taken no legal action to recover the money. And yet they continued this contract. They allowed Custer Bowles to keep working and to receive other contracts. They took no action to prevent that for almost a year. What they have to gain from not prosecuting these people? The, the government in the United States wants to foster the view that things are going well in Iraq. Coming down hard on war profiteers is inconsistent with that goal. If you're a war profiteer in Iraq, crime does pay. In Diwaniya, Dr. Ali Fadil is finding that the problem is not crime, but a lack of basic equipment. This is a maternity hospital, yet the neonatal care unit is desperately short of proper facilities. There are only 14 incubators, and they are old, made in the 70s. Most are broken, doors held in place by wires and tubes, and even plasters. This is unhygienic. They should be sealed to keep out germs. <laughs> Staff here feel angry, but they also feel betrayed. The coalition says it spent hundreds of millions of dollars on health, yet still babies suffer unnecessarily for lack of basic equipment. The coalition says security problems have slowed down progress in rebuilding Iraq. The climate of violence makes everyone nervous. On the road between Diwaniya and Baghdad, I was becoming increasingly worried about my own safety. I was shot at by American troops on two occasions. Once bursting the tires of my car, they drove off without explaining. But worse was to come. In the middle of the night, heavily armed American forces blasted their way into my home in Baghdad, the house we share with my wife's family. Suddenly we just hear the big, big explosion and then all the windows of the house 
we started hearing the windows breaking down and then uh, my wife woke up and then Sarah woke up and, and uh, Sarah started crying and she jumped to me and said daddy daddy I'm afraid and then suddenly we saw uh, the door opens and there is a uh, uh, and and firefight uh, and and fires fire starting uh, shooting from the from the door and then uh, three Americans got inside the room and they got me out of my bed and uh, they laid me down here on the ground. Around 20 American soldiers took part in the raid. The house was wrecked. My father and brother-in-law were beaten up. Their car was smashed. I was tied hooded and taken in an armored truck to a military base where they held me overnight. In the morning, they said it was a mistake, released me and gave me $1,500 in compensation. Right now, I'm thinking just like what they're with the rest of the Iraqis that I know, thinking that I'm gonna leave Iraq. I'm not gonna stay here anymore. I don't think it's gonna be possible for, for me to raise up Sarah here in Iraq, but, but I'll, I'll come back one day, I'll come back. It was only after dispatches complained to the US ambassador in Iraq that he apologized. But he said that in the war against insurgents, such incidents might happen again. I felt angry, but determined to continue my investigation. I still wanted to know what happened to Iraq's money. In Diwanir Pediatric Hospital, parents wait in anxious vigil by their sick children. But as in hospitals throughout Iraq, whether their children live or die could be determined by a lack of basic medicines and equipment. In the emergency room, I found this girl. Her name is Zahra, and she's only two days old. She has infant respiratory distress syndrome, a serious condition. She urgently needs drugs, like synthetic surfactant to help her lungs work, and oxygen. But the hospital has no surfactant and no oxygen regulators. Instead, staff have made a crude arrangement of old suction pipes. There's no way to control the level of oxygen that goes to each incubator. Zahra is a twin, born one and a half months premature. Her family live in Diwania, where her mother is a teacher. The other twin, Abbas, is in a different ward, where I met their father. The doctor said that because of shortages of drugs and equipment, around half the children with this condition will die. I needed to understand why hospitals are still so short of vital medicines and equipment. Even a small part of Iraq's $23 billion could have paid for these things. I wanted to ask Paul Bremer, the man who was in charge of the money, but he declined to talk to me. But of all the mysteries surrounding the disappearance of so much Iraqi money, perhaps the most bewildering is this. 
the coalition was due to hand over whatever was left of the Iraqi money to the incoming interim Iraqi government. But instead of trying to leave them as much as possible, the CPA spent the weeks leading up to the handover on an extraordinary spending spree. In a series of increasingly exasperated emails, Federal Reserve Bank official Timothy Fogarty told his colleagues what was going on. Just when you think you've seen it all, the Coalition Provisional Authority is ordering $2,401,600,000 to be shipped out on Friday, June 18th. In the last few weeks of the CPA, according to the records that we have, uh, we feel that there was a large push to expend the money that was remaining from the DFI. And at the time, we felt that there wasn't adequate planning in place, there wasn't adequate prioritization in place, and so there was a bit of a rush to get the money out the door and to spend it on reconstruction projects that maybe could have been better thought through. As the date of the handover approached, the coalition asked for more and more cash. I just left you voicemail, wrote the Federal Reserve's Timothy Fogarty. The CPA is now asking if we can add one billion to the already scheduled Tuesday shipment. It makes it a three billion dollar shipment. The CPA's rush to spend saw no less than five billion dollars go in the month before the handover. One CPA official was given nearly $7 million and told to spend it in seven days. He was given $6.75 million on the 21st of June and told to spend it by the 28th of June. And he told our auditors that he felt that there was more emphasis on the speed of spending the money than on the accountability for that money. He was given that money in cash? Yes, he was. On the 28th of June, 2004, Two days earlier than announced, Bremer handed power over to the interim Iraqi government. His authority had somehow disposed of nearly $20 billion of Iraq's reconstruction money. Of that, the largest amount, $8.8 billion, went to the Iraqi ministries. But the coalition didn't account for how it was all spent. If an, a ministry came in and said, you know, our portion of that money is $200 million, essentially the CPA would give them the $200 million and they would then be responsible for spending that. Where we felt there could have been better internal controls is in tracking where that money was used. In one ministry, there were over 8,000 people that were on the payroll. And when we tried to verify how many people were actually on the payroll, we could only come up with a little over 600 verified names. So there were concerns about the use of that money and the abuse of that money. And we felt that there could have been better control. Today, US investigators are trying to track down those who stole Iraq's money. They admit that their investigations into the coalition provisional authority have come too late. Even so, they have 50 criminal investigations underway. We launched several fraud investigations, and in the last couple of weeks, we've actually had three arrests of individuals who are suspected of everything from bid rigging to bribery to fraud uh, to money laundering and several other charges. It wasn't just crooked contractors who were stealing money. Even a coalition provisional authority official was at it too. Last month, Robert Stein Jr., employed as an official by the CPA despite a previous conviction for fraud, 
pleaded guilty to conspiring to steal more than $2 million and taking kickbacks in the form of cars, jewellery, cash and sexual favours. So, rather than security, bribery, corruption, fraud, mismanagement and incompetence are the real reasons for the disappearance of billions of dollars down the Iraq money pit. In the end, only $3.5 billion was handed over by the coalition to Iraq. Yet, last November, Britain's Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, told Parliament the government wasn't aware that any monies from the Development Fund for Iraq were unaccounted for. US Secretary of Defence Donald Rumsfeld declined to talk to us about the Iraqi money. But eventually, in the American Embassy in the heavily fortified Green Zone in Baghdad, we did find a man prepared to speak to Ali. I went to meet the new man in charge of America's reconstruction efforts in Iraq. I wanted to ask Ambassador Dan Speckhard what happened to our money, but he was not willing to discuss it. Most of the concerns about misspent money have to do with what happened uh, two years ago or before. When you actually look for evidence of current problems, there's only tiny little uh, fractions. Uh, the magnitudes you're talking about are very, very different. Uh, it's useful to sort of evaluate what happened so we can avoid those problems in the future, but it's a little bit uh, um, uh, water under the bridge at this point in terms of what we need to be focusing on for Iraq. So Iraq's $20 billion, much of it lost, wasted or unaccounted for, is now officially water under the bridge. But some former coalition officials have a very different message for Iraqis today. I would say I'm sorry we didn't do a better job. I'm sorry we didn't take more of the Iraqi money that we were trustees of and made sure it got into Iraqis. I'm sorry we didn't do many small projects, perhaps less visible, but much more effective in the long run, that would have really restored Iraq. What can be done now to rectify the mistakes that were made? Uh, what can be done now? The Iraqis are going to determine that. I think what we can do is very limited. Our, our opportunity has gone. We blew it. Now it's too late. Iraq's own money is spent. And America says that once the additional $21 billion it pledged has gone, there'll be no more. It's a far cry from the promises that were made at the beginning. We will help them to restore basic services, such as electricity and water, and to build new schools, roads, and medical clinics. Yes, expectations probably were too high by some of the Iraqis that when the world's uh, uh, strongest economic power comes to its aid, it can fix everything, but in reality, uh, a country is a very complex uh, situation. The challenges are enormous for when you have 26 million people. We have done what we can to help support, jumpstart the process of helping Iraq uh, get back on its feet uh, and return to sort of a modern uh, economic system. Back in the hospital at Diwaniya, I wanted to check on the condition of Zahra and Abbas, the twins born one and a half months premature. Their mother was still unwell after the birth and being cared for in another ward. She had not been told how weak her children were. 
When I found Zahra, the doctor was having a difficult time trying to treat the child without proper drugs or ventilation equipment. With no suitable mask to resuscitate her, he could only hold the tube to her nostril. If the reports that we're seeing coming out of Iraq now are, are even half true, the situation there should not exist. This was never a developing country with a third world kind of approach. This was a country that at one time had been the star of the Middle East in terms of health care. It was a country that other Middle Eastern countries referred to as a model of health care. And yet they are functioning at a bare subsistence or below subsistence level. They haven't got basic equipment. They haven't got masks. They haven't got drugs. They should have had those within six months, not still be looking for them three years later. You know, it's, it's, it's a type of distribution that is sporadic. Uh, it's a type of distribution that uh, some people hoard equipment uh, and supplies. It's a type of distribution system that isn't efficient. Uh, in time, it will get better, uh, but it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but hospitals are functioning. That's what's important here. Do they have every supply that you might have in UK? No. Uh, are, are people doing the best they can with what they have? Yes. The problem is, the doctors caring for Zahra have virtually nothing to make the best of. They have no ventilators, no adrenaline, not even a cheap but essential medicine like vitamin K. Even the cannula being used on Zahra had to be bought on the black market by her father. And now he has gone into town again, this time looking for vitamin K. Only the grandmother is here. Then Zahra starts to deteriorate. She's gasping for breath. Her father has still not returned. But it is too late. And then the father comes back. If this hospital had had the correct equipment and the right drugs, Zahra should have survived. The next day, Abbas, Zehra's brother, died too. This is not the new Iraq we were promised when the coalition invaded our country.